Hello, and welcome to Peter Pan Man Dan, a podcast about fatherhood. I'm Dan, a screenwriter and first-time father, and these are my adventures. This episode is called Chump, and is about white men can't jump. More specifically, it's about that battle between my old life and my new life. Kiss your old life goodbye, one friend told me when I announced Meredith was pregnant. Ha! Yeah. I will. I'll take it to dinner, wine and dine it, maybe have sex with it, and then reveal that we're breaking up, I joked. I still wasn't taking any of this looming baby shit very seriously. That's basically what it's like, he said with a look so serious you'd think we were talking about a cancer diagnosis instead of the arrival of a miracle baby. Hope you're ready. It's a little hyperbole, but transitioning from one life stage to the next really does resemble a breakup. I would know. Before I met Meredith, I had fallen into a depressive funk. My dad had just died, and I was trying to become a screenwriter. Talk about a double whammy of tragic shit, am I right? I was painfully single and had been for eight long years. I hated myself with a passion and wanted to focus exclusively on trying to get my career off the ground. Plus, I was a drunk. Getting way too fucked up at least twice a week, then lying around in my hungover filth, didn't exactly make me relationship material. Go figure. I was so painfully single that that's how I saw myself. A lonely, loveless, drunk, struggling writer. And I leaned into that downer, morose, self-created label. In some ways, I think I enjoyed being sad and feeling sorry for myself, reveling in that poor-as-me existence. Hell, some people even nicknamed me Sad Dan. And to add to my sad Dan routine, I was one of those assholes who talked way too much about my dead dad, often steering even the lightest of conversations back to him. Oh man, my iPhone is dead. Need to charge it, a friend would say. Yeah, well, my dad is dead. Don't think there's a charger for that, I would say back. But the longer I was single, the more I started to like it. It felt a little like I was dating myself. I took myself to the movies. I went on long walks or jogs on the beach. Nobody judged me for the obscene amount of pretzels I consumed daily. I ate most meals on the couch while watching NBA games in one of my many stained Utah Jazz t-shirts. I tried my best to distract myself from the reality of just how alone I was. Like all of this was perfectly normal if I just didn't think too hard about it. In some ways, this dating myself thing was great. Sure, I wasn't getting laid or receiving the amount of affection all humans need, but I got to order pizza whenever the fuck I wanted, with whatever toppings I desired. Jalapenos and pineapple on a Wednesday afternoon? Fuck yeah. I got so comfortable with being single that I thought I might just be alone forever. I wouldn't have kids. I wouldn't build a family. It'd just be me. And I had started to feel okay with that. After all, there's really nothing wrong with being single and not having kids. It's a totally great way to live. The major downside of this dating myself phenomenon was that it started to make me increasingly selfish. I guess most single people are selfish. When you only have to worry about yourself, that's all you worry about. In fact, I would argue that you won't meet a more selfish person than someone who has been single for an extended period of time. Eight years was a long time for my selfishness to ferment, turning me into one egocentric fucker. Then, Meredith came storming into my life. 
we actually met over that nasty, hateful social media platform called Twitter, the last place you'd look for love. She was reading my marvelous, just amazing first book called Home is Burning and tweeted at me. So I'm reading your book and I'm pretty sure we're soulmates. Just thought you should know. I replied with something dumb like, thanks for reading. Always nice to meet a soulmate. By some grace of God, Meredith actually responded. We continued corresponding from there. Turns out she was right. We were soulmates. A couple of months after the tweet, she left her investment banking job at Credit Suisse in New York City, found a new finance job in Los Angeles, and moved into my bachelor pad in Santa Monica. But when I started dating Meredith, I was admittedly at the peak of my selfishness. I was used to doing whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. You only change when you want something else more. And well, I wanted things to work with Meredith. She was a loving, loyal, beautiful, smart, feisty Jersey girl with her shit together who could belly laugh with the best of them. I didn't want to lose her to myself. So to make the relationship functional, I had to, in a sense, break up with myself. I couldn't write, watch movies, and eat pizza all day. I couldn't obsess over the Utah Jazz all night never missing a second of their season while stuffing my fat face with pretzels. I had to relearn sacrifice, compromise, do those things that make you a normal, well-adjusted human being capable of building a life with someone else. I had to break up with Sad Dan and create a new Dan. I called him Happy Dan. I tried to stop wallowing around in my own sadness. I made fewer dead dad jokes. Though, not to brag, I still got a few in here or there. I tried to move on, let the past be the past while getting excited about the future. I even stopped drinking. I knew that slobbing around the house hungover for most of the weekend wasn't going to fly if I wanted a working relationship. I had to evolve into a new person. And well, that was an adjustment for my selfish ass. To make this transition even harder, I relapsed with alcohol a couple of times. My last relapse occurred in Palm Springs. I was celebrating my best buddy Giles' 40th birthday. Meredith and I had a stressful rush hour on a Friday night drive out to the desert. Meredith went to bed early, like she usually does, so I saw an opening to have some drinks and crack some goofs with pals. A few hours later, I was blackout drunk, sitting around a fire pit. I stood up just as my buddy was tossing the remains of his whiskey drink into the fire, which created a massive flame ball. It shot out of the pit and lit my face on fire. My eyebrows and some of my facial hair were singed off in the process. This occurred roughly a year after I had fainted in a parking lot while smoking late-night cigarettes and drinking beers with another pal. I had face-planted, nailing my forehead and nose on the hard asphalt. The accident had sent me to UCLA Medical Center's emergency room to get my face stitched up. It also left me with an asphalt mark permanently tattooed on my forehead. The blemish looks a little like when those dedicated Catholics ash up their forehead for Ash Wednesday. So, I call it my blessed everyday mark. It now serves as a reminder of my sin of drinking too much in a parking lot while smoking late night cigarettes. People often notice it and say something like, You've got some dirt on your forehead. Some assholes will even lick their thumb and attempt to rub it off. Disgusting. After these combined events, it became apparent that every time I got drunk, something bad would happen to my face. So, after the Palm Springs debacle, I realized it was finally time to hang up my drinking mug once and for all. Can't be having my beautiful face all lit up and smashed if I wanted wedding photos one day. All of this change was hard, 
but necessary. The loneliness combined with alcohol was starting to rot my brain and making me a little crazy. So breaking up with myself to be with Meredith was great for my mental health. She brought a freshness to my life that I needed, and she seemed to legitimize me in the eyes of others. If someone with her shit together like Meredith gave me her stamp of approval, others could see me as a real adult as well. And we achieved that coveted contentment. Happy Dan, happy us. After a year together, we added Maple to our little family. It's hard to articulate what a great addition she was. Just a sparkling princess of a dog. I thought getting a dog would make my life like 5% better, but Maple made it more like a thousand. God, I love her. Then Meredith and I got married at the boathouse in New York City's Central Park. Some real Sex in the City rom-com shit. We entered a blissful phase where everything was about Maple and us. The first couple of years of marriage were like an extension of our dating life. Lots of dinners out, vacations to tropical islands, road trips to Palm Springs while listening to murder podcasts. You know, usual married shit. I didn't miss the drinking as much as I thought I would. In fact, I liked never being hungover. I previously would spend at least one day of the week recovering from booze. So, I felt like I was getting one-seventh of my life back. It was also nice not living with the anxiety of trying to remember if I did or said something stupid the night before. Spoiler alert, the answer was almost always yes. With a clear head, I could now keep better track of all of my fuck-ups. I had toned down my intense selfishness, but before Theo arrived, my days were still largely built around me and all of my Peter Pan Man Dan activities. I'd write, hang with Meredith and Maple, and maybe go for a jog. And my nights? They were built around movies. This habit started when my dad was dying. While he laid in his hospital bed, we'd pop on a movie. It'd give us a little break from the intensity of the situation. An escape pod from feeding tubes and wheelchairs and adult diapers and dying. As a result, I became addicted to cinema. So addictive, in fact, that I decided to dedicate my life to writing screenplays. What a fucking idiot, right? But I took movie watching very seriously, almost like it was a job. Every night I tried to stay current with a new movie or pad my knowledge with a classic. I'd even build lists of everything I wanted to watch at the start of the month. And because I didn't have a kid, I actually had the time to watch most. Overall, I liked my new life. It was almost as if it was designed by Tom Hanks' character in Big. I was just missing the trampoline in my apartment, soda machine, and bunk beds. It sure beat being sad and making a bunch of dead dad jokes while fucked up beyond belief. The evolution from Sad Dan to Happy Dan felt great. When Theo came along, I knew that I needed to break up with my old life once again and transition into something I thought I might never become. A dad. I knew those dream days packed from start to finish with all the things I selfishly wanted to do would now be scarce. What I didn't realize was just how scarce they'd be. I did my best to prepare for dad life, like a family placing plywood over their windows before a hurricane hit. I got all my screenplays in a good place, knowing that writing time would be harder to come by in the weeks and months after he arrived. I trimmed my list of movies to watch during July, when Theo was due, to only a few. I even got Meredith a Peloton for her birthday so we could exercise at home, which I realized after it could be misinterpreted as an attempt to get her to lose that baby weight. I'm a dick, but not that big of a dick. I was ready, but during the first few weeks of Theo's life, I soon learned that babies are even more selfish than I am. In fact, they're self-centered assholes 
who are in complete control of your stay in hell. They pickpocket every last second of your free time you have. They make it virtually impossible to do anything for yourself. Believe it or not, babies don't give a fuck about what hobbies you used to have. I'm your hobby now, bitch, Theo said. I mean, he didn't actually say that because he's a baby and can only communicate via cries, but it was implied. The difference between my old life and my new life was best exemplified by my harrowing attempt to watch White Men Can't Jump. Let me explain what I mean by that confusing sentence. Before Theo was born, I was on a movie set in Los Angeles kick. I bailed out one of my dumb lists and started going through it. Falling Down, The Big Lebowski, Repo Man, LA Confidential, Sunset Boulevard, Drive, Heat, Collateral, The Long Goodbye, Nightcrawler, The Last Boy Scout, etc. A couple on my list, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and White Man Can't Jump, were on Stars, which I didn't have a subscription to. But I noticed that they were offering a free 7-day trial. I figured I could outsmart the system and easily watch both movies in that time frame. Fuck, maybe I could even sneak in another LA movie on my list, like Fletch. I started the free trial on a Monday night. I grabbed a big old bowl of pretzels and screened Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in one glorious two-hour and 41-minute sitting. Three hours later, Meredith's water broke. My first thought was, Wow, this is going to be an exciting day. Can't wait to meet our little miracle. My second thought was, Fuck, I hope I get home from the hospital in time to watch White Man Can't Jump before my free trial ends. We brought Theo home two days later, on a Thursday, meaning I still had four days left on the trial. No problem, right? But over those next four days, as we learned how to change diapers and swaddle and soothe the crying baby, I could only find the time to watch the film in five to ten minute bursts while rocking Theo, hoping that all the crass language wasn't seeping into his still-forming brain. I guess if his first word is jump, I'll know for sure. Unfortunately, I couldn't finish the one hour and 58 minute long movie before the trial ran out. I needed an extra couple of days. So, I paid the $8.99 for another month of stars. Money I plan on taking directly out of Theo's college fund. To me, this whole white man can't jump mess showcased the amount of change my life was heading for. It simply wasn't going to be possible to sit down and watch a two-hour and 41-minute movie in one sitting. Not for a bit, at least. I was living in a new reality. I should have just let my old life fade away from sight in the rearview mirror. But it wasn't that easy. My old life felt so near, so close, like I could still feel its hot breath on my neck. So, instead of accepting this change instantaneously, I fought it. This had the effect of making it almost feel like my old life and my new life were at odds, almost like they were engaged in an epic tug-of-war, a battle to win my heart and soul. While trying to calm Theo or rock him back to sleep, I'd often find myself fantasizing about what movies I could be watching, or projects I could be writing, or jogs I could be jogging. I'd even imagine I was on a beach in Turks and Caicos, walking through the soft sand, and that his cries were squawking seabirds. I'd picture Maple and me chasing around balls all over our apartment, then me rewarding her efforts with a big piece of chicken jerky, then her giving me a gross thank you lick across my big forehead, sliming it with flavored saliva. I'd yearn for small breaks from hell. I remember when a friend first became a dad, he said something to the effect that he used to view going to the grocery store as the most boring, bullshitty activity in his life. But now that he had kids... It was the highlight of his day. 
I felt a tinge of sadness when he relayed that to me, but also relief that I didn't have kids, that running errands wasn't some high point. But with Theo around, I suddenly related. Any reprieve from hell was like a vacation, even the simplest of things. A trip out to the alley to throw out the garbage was equivalent to a back massage. Going to the grocery store might as well have been a Hawaiian getaway. The most extreme example of boring tasks becoming a relaxing break from hell occurred when Meredith's best friend Kathleen came to town from New York to meet Theo. Kathleen had a hotel for her stay, but crashed in our guest room for the first night. She's never particularly liked me. She was Meredith's New York roommate when we met and felt like I had stolen her away. Fair enough. Ahead of her visit, Meredith gave me the option, rock Theo to sleep or clean the guest bathroom. I chose the bathroom. And I'll tell you what, I gave it the deepest cleaning in the history of deep cleans, scrubbing every square millimeter. I Cloroxed the floor, wiped down the mirrors, Windexed the shower glass. Fuck, I even brushed away any mildew and the grout between shower tiles. I didn't care that Kathleen hated me. Anything to extend my break from hell. I was also envious of people who got to continue living their lives and hadn't been sucked into the baby hell yet. When I'd take Maple out for her nighttime shit and would see joggers running by, I wanted to tackle them, pin them down, and yell, You don't know how lucky you are! When I'd see a car driving down the street, I thought of plopping myself on the windshield and screaming, Mister! Mister! Get me out of here! like the old lady trying to escape the nursing home in Happy Gilmore. I was able to get out for a couple of jogs in the first couple of weeks thanks to Meredith's parents. I think they could tell that I was slowly going crazy. They probably realized that taking movies and jogs, my two escapes, away from me was some form of torture. But getting even a little taste of my old life made going back to my new one even harder, like it somehow amplified what I had lost. When jogs weren't possible, the peloton was there, glimmering in the corner. But after a long day of caring for Theo on the heels of five hours of sleep, the last thing I wanted to do was hop on the stationary bike and be yelled at by some hard-body, childless instructor. There were a couple of times where I'd get my fat feet in the shoes and click in. Then Theo would start crying. I'd struggle to unclick from the bike's grip and run to care for the little guy. It all felt pointless. As I continued jamming parts of my old life into my new life, I started to feel even more exhausted. I just couldn't do it. There was no fighting it. Instead of expecting everything to miraculously go back to how it used to be, I just needed to learn how to accept this new reality. I needed to come to terms with the fact that I had to, at least temporarily, sacrifice some of my selfish Peter Pan Man Dan activities. I couldn't expect to exercise every day. I couldn't watch every movie I wanted to watch in one sitting. I had to just submit to my hell overlord, Theo. After all, that's what being a parent is all about. Sacrificing your life to make your child's as great as possible. I also had to sit myself down and have a little chat. I had to stop focusing on all the things I couldn't do and start focusing on all the things I was gaining. I needed to do some Zen Buddhist shit and live in the now, instead of always wanting to be somewhere else, doing something else. I mean, I had an adorable, loving little pal who I got to go through the rest of my life with. Sure, he was an infant now, but he wouldn't be forever. 
even if it felt that way. His little baby body would grow into a toddler, then child, then teenager, then adult. As he did, all these hobbies I had accumulated would start to trickle back into my life, like wildlife returning to a scorched forest. And I could even share these dumb hobbies with Theo. We could sit and watch a movie together. We could attend a basketball game. We could go for jogs. And better yet, he'd soon develop his own interests and hobbies that we could do together. Theo wasn't some prison warden making sure my life sucked. He was a friend, a pal, who was going to open the world up to me instead of closing it down. He wasn't some demonic hell creature. He was a light shepherding in a completely new existence. I just needed to let that light in. Sure, things would look different, but that's okay. Not all change is bad. I needed to embrace and relish in the love I felt when he slept in my arms. That love you feel for your child is a bigger hit of dopamine than any jog or any movie could provide. Well, except for White Men Can't Jump. That weird-ass movie fucking rocks. Drop whatever you're doing and go watch it right now, unless you're holding your baby. Don't drop your baby. As Theo napped on my chest one morning, his little baby breaths causing his chest to push against my beating heart, I looked down and smiled at the little guy. Then I remembered a line from White Men Can't Jump, said by Gloria, played by Rosie Perez. Sometimes when you win, you really lose. And sometimes when you lose, you really win. And sometimes when you win or lose, you actually tie. And sometimes when you tie, you actually win or lose. Winning or losing is all one organic mechanism from which one extracts what one needs. So true. It didn't matter who won this tug of war between my old life and my new life. It only mattered if I extracted what I needed from it. And well, I needed to accept my new life. I needed to realize that parenting isn't always fun. It's a sacrifice, but a sacrifice that rewards you by ensuring that you're giving your child the best shot at a great, happy, healthy life. Nothing is more important. So it was time to break up with Happy Dan and Sad Dan before that, and finally become Dad Dan. I knew it might take some time to completely adapt, but I at least needed to start trying. I'm trying to change for you, buddy. Sorry if it's taken me longer than expected. I'll get there. I love you, little guy. I said to Theo, then kissed the top of his soft baby head. Theo looked up through his squinty infant eyes, appearing almost sweet, sympathetic. But then he said, Jump! I mean, he didn't actually, but it was implied. This has been Peter Pan Man Dan, a Mangano Movies and Media podcast. Thanks for listening. On the next episode of Peter Pan Man Dan, Meredith and I struggle to get our hungry baby enough milk. Talk to you then.